Hey friends, it's Corey Andrew Powell here, letting you know it's time to treat yourself with an exclusive Motivational Mondays deal at the NSLS shop. Listeners get 20% off shop-wide with the code MONDAYS. That's M-O-N-D-A-Y-S. Need a new coffee tumbler? Or perhaps you want to keep it classy with a new hardcover notebook? Well, get them on sale. Listen, with this deal, I'm tempted to trade in my bow tie collection for one of those cute NSLS hoodies. And don't forget, use code MONDAYS at checkout. That's M-O-N-D-A-Y-S. Enjoy that 20% off at shop.nsls.org. And stay motivated, leaders. Stay motivated. Raul Sanchez and Dan Bullock are corporate communications experts and professors at New York University. Together, they've penned a new book, How to Communicate Effectively with Anyone, Anywhere, Your Passport to Connecting Globally. The book has become a must-read for everyone wanting to communicate more effectively online or in person. Dan and Raul join me today to discuss the inspiration behind their book. I'm Corey Andrew Powell, your host, and this is Motivational Mondays. Together, you guys have penned this book called How to Communicate Effectively with Anyone, Anywhere. So I would love to talk to you guys about it and why you wrote it. But first, welcome to Motivational Mondays. Thank you. Thank you for having us, Corey. We appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Corey. It's great to be here. You're welcome. My pleasure. Thank you for joining me. So just to get right into it. To me, it seems like much of what you are writing in your book about global communication is not just about how effective communication can work in business and academia, but also it seems like that could be applied to everyday like societal communication with people in general, and that might make the world a better place. Just my assumption. But tell me, what is the term global communication as you use it in your book, and why did you decide to write a book about it? Global communication to us is a dedication to human relationships. And so, you know, when we were in the the process of writing the book, we were researching ways to work more effectively with each other, but more importantly, relate more deeply to each other. So not just communicating, but connecting with one another on this planet that we share. And one influence, you know, one impetus for writing the book is something called the overview effect. So this is the idea that the most powerful cognitive shift can happen when an astronaut turns in spaceflight to look back at the Earth. This shift in mindset is said to be so powerful that it's the key to sustainability and world peace. And we started with this photograph, this is one of the most influential photographs ever taken, Earthrise from the Apollo 8 mission. And this is when the astronauts turned around in space flight and looked at the Earth and took um, this photograph. It was William Anders who took it. And, you know, his quote is that, you know, we set out to discover the moon, but in fact, we discovered the Earth. And this image went as close to viral as an image could at the time flooded by international media across the planet. It's credited with starting the environmental movement. And the idea, the reason we started with this sort of uh, global mindset is that this is what we need to bring to our interactions on the global marketplace. You know, seeing patterns of communication that we all share in common, seeing ourselves as part of an interconnected system. And so this was the crux of the book, connecting the global mindset with a global skill set. And so each chapter in the book pertains to these different skills that you need as a global communicator in our globalized era, you know, public speaking on the world stage, we have negotiation skills, networking skills, and then nonverbal skills, and so on. And then the, at the end, you know, each chapter forms a collection of skills, which we would define as essential for the modern day global communicator. So that mindset, that idea of a global mindset connected to a very practical action-oriented global skill set was the impetus for the book. If I could just add as well, Corey, yeah, so if we take the term global communication, right, and we think of it almost as like a visual construct or 
in a visual sense of some sort, we might want to think of it as a mosaic, right? A mosaic where there's a number of different patterns and different perspectives that kind of fit together like a puzzle, right? So, for example, like in the news, we've heard about Jeff Bezos going to space or suborbital space, right, as well as Richard Branson, right? And more than likely, they've come back with this kind of renewed impression of Earth, like this greater perspective, so to speak, um, this cosmic consciousness, whatever you want to call it, right? But there is more that unites us than divides us, even though we have all these differences, right? So, for example, just think of the International Space Station, right? If you look up in the night sky and you see it floating through the sky, we have to think that collectively countries have come together to accomplish this huge feat. It rotates 16 times around the earth every 24 hours. But the idea is that there's a lot of cooperation. There's a lot of collaboration between the languages, the nationalities, the genders, even to some degree. If we think about it this way, there's 15 nations, right? There's five agencies and there's one vision. So people can come together whenever there's a collective vision and global communication is a big part of that to help problem solve, right? And whether it's the International Space Station, it could be climate change. We're trying to do that here on Earth. The human genome has been sequenced, and that's been done through collaboration between multiple countries. We can even take the example of COVID-19 today, right, um, in order to find a solution. So we live in a very solutions-oriented world, and whenever countries are called upon, right, we tend to move or sidestep the differences, and we focus more on the similarities. That's really so wonderful because it's a big component of the NSLS. One of our big main pillars is that we have far more in common with each other than there are differences. And we build our whole community of inclusiveness and diversity on that virtue. So we definitely relate to that. And also you mentioned the space station, the International Space Station, which does have all these different people from different backgrounds, different countries. And so I do wonder if at the very basic level, does global communication just begin with like the mindful effort to be respectful of other cultures, backgrounds, ethnicities, any sort of phobias or biases? Like, I mean, what role would you say that has to play at the very basic level of global communication, if at all? I mean, one simple model that I tend to think of is similar to Professor Borlaug said about the mosaic is this kaleidoscopic perspective, you know, experiencing cultural attributes as part of a, a part of patterns, right? So a kaleidoscope, you know, you're, you're, it's that cylinder where the light comes through and it reveals these colorful palette of patterns. And so, um, but when we experience the world that way, when we see the world that way, we're thinking about the confusing mindfulness with action. So, you know, beyond just thinking of our body as, a, as one of the greatest communications instruments we have, thinking about mindfulness to connect the context to what we're doing. So for example, if we're thinking about nonverbal communication, and someone crosses their arms while we're speaking, our immediate reaction may be, oh, this person is closed off to our ideas. But in fact, they may simply be cold because of the temperature in the room, you know? And so that's a simple, you know, kind of humorous example, but thinking about the importance of context and intercultural researcher, Edward T. Hall, he identified these two larger patterns of cultural communication, high context cultures, which tend to be Eastern cultures are more implicit in their communications. They focus more on nonverbal aspects of communication for meaning. And then on the other hand, we have um, low context cultures, which tend to be Western cultures. They're more explicit and tend to focus on verbal and written communication for meaning. And so you can imagine even in the virtual space, how important navigating these two patterns is. But going back to your idea about, you know, I think with diversity and inclusion with that phrase, you know, diversity is the mosaic, right? It is the kaleidoscope that exists. But inclusion is the action step. This is something that we always have to fuse, that awareness, the mindfulness with 
the way we integrate these different patterns and the richness that we offer, you know, with all of our um, unique attributes as part of this tapestry. You know, I believe that also when it comes to the topic of communication in general or effective communication, there was a Financial Times quote about your book in which it says that there's a whole lot of other books out there that clutter up the the retail space when it comes to books on these topics of doing effective communications or effective presentations. However, yours, they said, has the ability to really teach us something about those areas. So why is your book different from the other books that are quote unquote clogging up the bookshelves (laughs) that are not as effective? So our book is unique in the sense that we're focusing on a singular framework, right? A singular communications framework. A lot of other books are geared towards maybe focusing on specific customs and cultures and ways to approach people by country, right? Where ours is focused on the skill set. So like Will had mentioned earlier, it's focused on these skills. It's divided into skills. There's six chapters. It's divided into these skills that you're just kind of expected to learn along the way. You're not necessarily taking a class that's maybe 12 weeks long devoted to, let's say, nonverbal communication, right? But you're just expected to figure it out along the way. So whether it is effective emailing or whether it is negotiation or whether it is persuasive writing, strategically positioning yourself in writing, or it could be speaking at the same time, all of that's just an expectation that you are supposed to learn. But our book, for example, instead of communication strategies targeting a homogenized audience from one country, right, our book delivers these singular communication models. And this is something that we continually stress throughout the book, whether it's through using metaphors, whether it's also relating high context and low context cultures and finding the patterns in between. So that's one component. And we also have a really cool feature that we also want to share with you as well, Corey. And maybe I can turn it over to a role to maybe speak a little bit about that. So my twin brother, Rod Sanchez, uh, award-winning artist Rod Sanchez, is the illustrator of the book. He provided another rich layer to this text that really pushed us in, in the writing process. And of course, everything was collaborative, the ideas, the messaging. And so the research shows that communicating information through more than one sense is more powerful and effective interculturally. So that was an idea that we wanted to bring to the execution of the book. And then one innovative aspect of the book that my twin brother spearheaded the text is an augmented reality feature. So the illustrations, select illustrations in the book come to life with your smartphone. So there is an app you download called Artivive, and then the illustrations have been designed to come to life on the page. And you simply hover your smartphone over the page, and then you'll see hidden tips, for example, body language techniques or public speaking and so it adds another dimension to the book, makes it multi-sensory as an experience. So that's another unique aspect. And then the book also has exercises. So not just for applying the concepts, but for self-discovery and self-empowerment. So this is another unique attribute. But as Dan mentioned, most traditional texts, when they, you think about cross-cultural communication, people tend to go, oh, no, <laughs> I have to memorize all these facts about all these different countries, which is nearly impossible, right? All the customs and different time zones. and But in fact, you know, we're focusing more on singular models that work not just in one particular country, but all countries and accommodate individual diversity as well. And so every chapter, it deals with a practical model and skill rather than being a travelogue with one chapter on this country, one chapter from this country. So it's a very practical action-oriented text. You know, it's funny because I love to travel and you bring up a good point. It's like, 
if I want to travel to all these various countries and I'm conscious of not wanting to offend anyone, like I use Brazil, for example, and I had to learn that like the okay sign was the equivalent to the middle finger in Brazil. And as an American, I'm used to just being like, okay. And I had to be very careful not to do that. But then imagine doing that, like learning that about every place you visit. And that would be very, very taxing. So I love the idea that there's this sort of like universal plan that you sort of lay out that can kind of guide us through just sort of everyday communication with anyone anywhere without having to worry about all those like specific nuances. And, you know, you mentioned something, a term called mirroring as well in the book. And it's something that actually is a tool that you could use to help you build a better rapport with people who you are encountering. So Dan, why don't you take that one and start off and sharing what is mirroring and how it helps you build rapport. Yeah, so we talk about mirroring, and it's an interesting concept because a lot of the time, again, going back to that topic of really focusing on similarities, right? Whenever we're in another country or we're speaking in another language, so for example, like I've studied abroad in a place called Le Sable de Lone, which is northwestern France and Brittany, so just below the UK. And whenever I was there, like I've learned that it's a very expressive culture, right? So you have to use a mode of language, you have to use action verbs, it's very action oriented because you're expressing yourself, right? But the idea with mirroring is we all tend to naturally want to imitate, right, somebody else in another culture because we want to fit in, so to speak, right? So that's where this mirroring concept kind of comes from as well. We use it in the book as it relates to effective emailing, right? So although we can do it in person, the idea is we're targeting reader communication styles. Now, what this means is adjusting our communication style to position ourselves better uh, to connect with the other party, to build more rapport, right? Because if we're using similar qualities or similar words, diction, whatever it is, right? More than likely, we will start to show some goodwill or we will start to build some rapport. Eventually, that might turn into trust, right? Um, sometimes we have to position ourselves with just maybe a little bit of vulnerability to show goodwill, right? But the whole idea is we're trying to build a relationship, right? It's a little more difficult to do that in emailing. We have to think about it this way as well. So something that we always kind of teach in class is there's four elements of communication, right? So we have to think about the audience is number one in anything that you do, right? You have to know your audience. After you know your audience, then you have to know your purpose. Well, what am I trying to do? Am I trying to inform somebody of something where I'm sharing a bunch of facts? Am I trying to advise them in something or instruct? Or am I trying to persuade, right? So a lot of the time, it's a combination of those two. And it doesn't matter what culture that you come from, we're going to either be informing or persuading. There is a third one, entertaining, but that's a combination of the two, right? But the idea is we are trying to create some sort of message, right? Being informed by the audience and the purpose and hopefully adding some sort of value so that people pay attention to what we say, right? Uh, so that the idea is that the audience is going to bring their own kind of purpose to any sort of communication that we have. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to match that. And we talk about these four reader communication styles, whether it's an expressive style, a driver style, an amiable style, and an analytical style. So there's really four in the book. We break it up into like these four quadrants and we talk about these characteristics. And each of them have very nuanced elements. And maybe I can turn it over to Professor Sanchez to further elaborate a little bit more. We were on a, another podcast and the interviewer said, well, I don't want to lose myself, right? When I'm mirroring, I don't want to do it so much that I forget my own sense of self. She said, what are your tips for that? We spoke to her. And of course, the idea that we're thinking of one of the most important relationships in our lives, we might think that the idea that we have to modify our behavior 
for someone else doesn't seem like the most satisfactory relationship, right? We want to think that other people have to adapt to us. But in fact, when we do change our communication style to match those of others, we demonstrate that every person is as important as we are, right? And that we can start to create a deep respect there and also empathy, right? This is when we create a space for empathy and adaptability. And so when we adapt our style to be closer to that of others, we don't just communicate better, but we understand each other on a more deeper level. And so as, as Dan mentioned in emailing, this is one of the easiest ways to do it in the book because you can sit and craft an email in you know, different styles and you have the time because you're in front of a screen. But that's a, a way to start this approach before you delve into some of the other aspects. And that's what we're trying to bring to life, Corey, like in the book. So yeah, so there's linguistic components to it, right? But it really gets down to this other layer, this these psycholinguistics, right? On Because communications is a psychological process, hands down, right? So we have to be able to understand the other person that we're communicating with, the other team. If we work on global teams, for example, we have to have this cognitive flexibility, so to speak, right? So, so knowing when to shift between like Rule said, high context cultures and low context cultures, expanding our perceptions, combining different approaches, everything kind of feeds into this. So the most, I guess, successful people are not necessarily the most compassionate people, right? We want to focus on being more compassionate, right? Bringing dignity to everything, seeing the individual within the culture first, understanding the needs and wants, right? And making sure that we're seeing them as a person, seeing their humanity, so to speak, right? And then we focus on maybe some of the cultural nuances, but it hands down, it comes down to seeing the person within the culture first. It's interesting because I think that when we come to our attempts to try to communicate with other people in the world, I think we do tend to sort of have no reference other than what we think we know about them, which are the stereotypes. It's interesting how I think America, unfortunately, I think has a reputation more than probably any other country as being more of a more of a nationalistic society where we don't speak as many languages. And I think that's geographic. I mean, you know, Europeans speak many languages because of the way the geography is laid out. You go within five countries and you can have five different languages all within like, you know, five days. We don't have that here. We just have different dialects of English. So I think it's on one hand it's geographic, but we do have a bit of a reputation, if you will, for not making the most efforts to try to maybe communicate and, and understand other cultures. Do you find that that's more of something that happens with Americans or is that just, do I have a warped view about that? Or is that kind of an American problem? I think coming to linguistics, coming to language, a responsible use of language is a place to start. We need to get to a place where our humanity is more important to us than our politics, because we live in an age where words can be used to conceal more than reveal. You know, and I think, you know, even going to, Something like immigration, for example, you know, the words we use to categorize or define human beings. Illegal is not, is not a term that is, of course, positive and inclusive. And how can we arrive at a new definition for a human being? That, and then, you know, going back to Carl Sagan, who said, we're all made of star stuff. These are definitions that transcend religions, transcend ideologies. But thinking about, you know, the language that we use, I think, is, is one place to start. Yeah, so like I just think it's important to think about that question in the context of diversity, right? So, for example, so ways of developing this global mindset. So, how do we do it? Like, what do we need to focus on, right? So, going back to that similarities and differences, but also if someone chooses to look at differences, we have to value the differences because that's where we really get the innovation, right? So, valuing the differences to cultivate and empower what's called this diversity of thought, 
right? So getting ideological here a little bit, but this diversity of thought in addition to, let's say, a person's language or a person's ethnic background and national origin, it could even be gender and age, and the list goes on to these non-financial indicators. But the idea is, in other words, what we're doing is focusing on what is known as cognitive diversity, right? So this is a type of diversity to better understand on how a person thinks and engages with new, uncertain, and complex situations. And I think if we start to recognize that diversity as a whole brings about a lot more in terms of scope than just focusing on, okay, well, that person might approach something a different way than me, right? And it could simply just come down to, again, focusing on the individual and the culture and then pairing it down to, okay, well, well, maybe they approach this math problem a little bit differently, but we arrive at the same answer, right? We have to learn from other people in different cultures because things are done differently And we also have to consider that there's different thought processes. People are going to uptake information a little bit differently and process information differently. Something we talk about in the book is cultural thought patterns, right? So, For example, in the U.S., we tend to think of information as very linear. It's very sequenced. It's it's logical in the sense of how we perceive it, right? It comes down to perception. Right. To where the main idea is at the very beginning. And then after that, they're supporting details. Right. Well, that's not the same way that everyone across the world is going to perceive this. Right. We have to think of. So if we're taking that high context and low context cultures, low context cultures consist of the United States. It's also going to be northwestern, north central Europe, Scandinavia, Australia, New Zealand. Right. So all of these regions and countries fit under this low context culture format, which makes up about 30 percent of the world's cultures. On the other side, there's indirectness. There's an indirect way of thinking about um, processing information. Right. To where we give a lot of details or metaphors, proverbs. And this is indicative of Eastern cultures. And for example, these Eastern cultures, which would also be labeled as high context cultures, consist of about 70% of the world's cultures, more than 50%, 70% of the world's cultures, which consist of a large majority of Latin America, North Africa, the Middle East, Sub-Saharan Africa, large swaths of Asia, as well as some other pockets around the world. But we have to think that there's these different cultural thought patterns that people are using. And those are just two of them because those are the most commonly used ones. There are other patterns called parallel thought patterns as well as digressive thought patterns. That brings me also to another point you have raised, which is to avoid idioms and slang terminology when possible, when you're trying to speak globally. And there can be some really serious pitfalls in that because typically a person trying to understand you is going to maybe translate exactly verbatim what you're saying. And this is something that is called global English, you know, so exactly what we were talking about earlier, the idea of being cognizant of speaking other languages, also being cognizant of our own language. And global English is something that has risen um, to prominence in multinational corporations, also entities such as the United Nations, where we both, you know, consult and, and train and work. But the idea of an international business standard, that is a, a usage of global English that is not necessarily American English or British English or Australian English, but it's an English that's been optimized for global audiences. And uh, the easiest way, I think, sometimes to think of global English is what is not global English. And so what is not global English would be idioms, right? As you mentioned, so these are those phrases that have a different meaning than the individual parts, like cut and dry off the top of my head. You know, these are things that are not easily to translate. Or cultural references. You know, Americans love references to baseball. So we often say, you know, that idea came out of left field or bring your A game. 
these are not easily translatable. So if we use a cultural reference, we want to make sure that it's something that's universally recognizable. And then, of course, you know, we have phrasal verbs. These are those two-word or three-word verbs like draw up, you know, get ahead. And so instead in our trainings, we recommend using a single verb. So instead of draw up the contract, write the contract or draft the contract. And then, you know, but the idea with Global English is, as Dan mentioned, the International Space Station, you know, how can we arrive at a common language and then use that language to collaborate and innovate together? And so, you know, one thing we, we mentioned in our trainings, we say, just think of that International Space Station in the sky. And this is your prism for thinking about being responsible with language and also you know, optimizing language, not simplifying it. So it's different than plain language. We're not simplifying the idea. We're clarifying it and optimizing it. Dan Bullock and Raul Sanchez, authors of How to Communicate Effectively with Anyone, Anywhere. Thank you so much for your time today, gentlemen. Thank you for listening to Motivational Mondays presented by the National Society of Leadership and Success and available wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. I'm Corey Andrew Powell, and I'll see you again here next week.